Welcome to Doing a World of Good, a podcast from the American Institute of Chemical Engineers and generously supported by Raj and Kamla Gupta, shining the light on the positive works of our members and supporters. I'm your host, Bob Norp. The development of plant-based and cell-based meat products, also called cultured meat or clean meat, has happened really rapidly over the past few years. At last count in early 2019, there are now over three dozen startups in the cell-based meat space alone, and many larger meat producers are attempting to capitalize on the trend. Clearly, consumers, innovators, and investors are hungry for these new products, forgive the pun. So to help us make sense of it all, we have with us today three experts working with the Good Foods Institute in an effort to educate legislators and the public at large about alternative meats. First up, we have with us Dr. Allison Burke, who advises GFI academic research and education initiatives related to clean meat and plant-based meat alternatives. Welcome, Dr. Burke. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And next, we have Dr. Liz Specht, a GFI senior scientist working to identify and address areas of need for plant-based and clean meat innovation as well as encouraging funding agencies to prioritize research that moves the field forward. Dr. Specht, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. And finally, we have Dr. Elliot Swartz, a GFI academic research advisor focused on public education and assisting clean meat startups, as well as advocating for clean meat and plant-based meat research and expanding awareness of the career opportunities in this field. So welcome to the program, Dr. Schwartz. Thanks for having me. So before we go further, maybe you could all give us some perspective first. I'm going to start with uh, Liz, if you could answer this. Um, What exactly are we talking about when we say plant-based and cell-based meats? How are they made and what is the current size of the industry? Um, Maybe take us through a little bit of perspective so that we understand what the scope of this, this initiative is. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'll start with kind of the motivation for why we're pursuing these alternatives to conventional um, animal agriculture production. So if we look at how we're going to feed a growing world, you know, a population approaching 10 billion by about 2050 or so, we're starting to run into some really strict resource limitations with regards to our most resource-intensive food products, uh, virtually all of which are derived from animal agriculture. So if you look at Um, land as it's currently used, 50% of all of our current agricultural land goes towards animal agriculture, either as pasture land or to grow crops for those animals. Uh, And so we've only got 50% of of the remaining land left. And yet those products are so resource intensive that uh, the majority of that land is, is being used for animal agriculture, but that's contributing a relatively minor portion of our overall calories and our protein uh, because of some of those inherent inefficiencies. So the the endeavor here is really to say, can we rely on new technologies and new approaches to build meat products that give consumers exactly what they're looking for, give them that exact same consumer experience and that same nutritional value, but do so in a way that's much less resource intensive. 
So there's kind of two sides of this coin. One is plant-based meat products, where we're taking proteins from plant sources, or in some cases, fungal sources, um, extracting those proteins, and then restructuring them into forms that really recapitulate, you know, the experience of eating meat. So to structure them in these kind of fibrous textures and, and get that mouthfeel just right, which of course comes with flavorings and so forth. Um, so companies in, in this space that folks might be familiar with are companies like Impossible Foods or Beyond Meat or Gardein uh, that are really stepping up the game in terms of the quality of these products. And then the other side of the coin is cell-based meat products, also called cultured meat or clean meat. There's quite a few terms used in the industry right now. But this is basically growing genuine animal meat, but from the level of the cell rather than the whole animal. So really relying on uh, techniques that have been honed over decades in mostly biomedical research to grow animal cells in culture, but applying that towards agriculture. So it sounds like it's a massive undertaking that's involving a multi-prong approach. Um, yeah, let me... Let me let me bring in um, uh, Allison into this conversation because it's just like, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on the scope of the industry as a whole. Um, how big is cell-based meat as opposed to plant-based meat? Um, what is the ultimate goal of the, of the industry and where do you see the future moving this, uh, this development forward? Sure. So, Cell-based meat is much more nascent than plant-based meat because, as you can tell when you go to a grocery store, you can buy plant-based meat and plant-based meat alternatives like the Beyond Burger or even uh, Veggie Burgers, other kind of Gardein products and other brands, um, whereas all of the cell-based meat startups right now are in the stage before they are selling to consumer. So they are still refining and testing those products. The hope eventually, though, I mean, for us as an organization, the hope is that plant-based and cell-based meat combined in whatever proportion ends up being adopted by the market would replace nearly all animal products and would replace nearly all of the sort of conventional animal-based meat that we grow now. Um, the reason why we hope for that is because along with the resource issues in terms of being able to feed a growing population, the uh, climate change issues and the animal welfare issues, we understand that these issues aren't going to be solved via making these types of ethical pleas. Um, that no matter how well-educated people are about these issues, when it comes to making a choice about food, people are still going to end up making that choice based on taste, price, and convenience. So the reason why we hope that these products are able to take over the market is because we really believe that they're going to deliver on all three of those aspects, that they're going to taste better than conventional meat because they're going to be better able to um, select flavor profiles and to kind of create new meat products that are not available in nature and not available through an animal via being able to engineer a product to have a given flavor profile or to have a given fat profile. Um, we think they are going to be able to compete on price, even though cell-based meat is not there. Um, Plant-based meat is rapidly approaching and in some cases has reached um, price parity with animal-based meat, particularly because plants are going to be less expensive to grow than animals given the relative efficiency of growing them. Um, and we hope that through our advocacy and through other kind of market factors, they're also going to be able to be more convenient because they're going to have supply chains that make them easier to penetrate food deserts and easier to penetrate more markets because unlike animal-based meat, they won't need to be shipped 
um, with such tightly controlled uh, aspects such as refrigeration. Um, they won't need to be inspected as as heavily for diseases that won't be present in the process of that would be and that would be them. that would be true about the plant-based meats, but for the cell-based meats, it would still require refrigeration and storage in the same manner as regular meat. Correct, or am I misunderstanding this? They may not, and some of the pathogens that are tested for in animal-based meat, like E. coli, are tested for because they're coming from an animal that's grown with a digestive system and with. Um, with fecal matter that could be introduced to uh, the product in the process of slaughter. Because cell-based meat would be grown in a laboratory environment and under conditions of biomedical, you know, approaching biomedical sterility, uh, there wouldn't be an opportunity for some of those pathogens to be introduced. So there, there would be fewer, um, fewer inspection steps required. Uh, and in some cases, companies are looking at alternatives that wouldn't require refrigeration or wouldn't require the same type of shipping chain. So for example, growing cell-based fish that doesn't need to be shipped on ice throughout that can be kept at higher temperatures without worrying about spoilage or without worrying about um, the development of, of pathogens that are present in wild fish but wouldn't be present in cell-based fish. That's really fascinating, fascinating stuff. Uh, Elliot, um, it's probably pretty obvious to most of our listeners at this point that the field cuts across a lot of scientific boundaries. A lot of disciplines are being engaged in this. What kind of technologies and sciences are involved in the process and how are they working together uh, to advance the cause of developing new meat sources? Yeah, uh, these fields are, are truly interdisciplinary um, from, from the start uh, to the finish. And so if you, if you look at kind of plant-based meat products, um, there's opportunities for a lot of different types of scientists to get involved from uh, kind of genetic engineers or geneticists that work on developing new plant crops for, for breeding. Um, and then there's also a need for people that have biochemistry backgrounds um, that can work in kind of separating proteins and, and figuring out new methods to apply to uh, extract pr plant proteins or plant fats and how to get them to kind of work together in a food product. Um, along those same lines, uh, food scientists are really key in trying to recreate and recapitulate the aspects of meat that give us, you know, the sensory profiles that we desire, uh, as well as the nutritional content of the downstream products. And then finally, there are also need for kind of engineers that are developing new tools and machinery to actually uh, kind of break down the plant um, plant product itself into its uh, constituent components. And then on on the cell-based meat side of things, uh, again, it it really takes a, a whole lot of teams of scientists that work together in an interdisciplinary format to make this work. And so. A lot of companies right now are really focused on early research and development where there's a great need for uh, scientists with backgrounds in, in cell biology and, and bioprocess and chemical engineering as, as we begin to start to grow these cells in, in bioreactors rather than just 2D uh, planar culture. And, and then downstream, when we think about trying to structure products that uh, resemble meat and a 3D and thick tissues such as like a, a steak or something like that. Um, there's a great need for engineers to come in with bio, kind of tissue engineering backgrounds that will work with uh, scaffolding materials to try to recreate tissues in, in large scale 3D formats. 
Um, and so there's really a lot of opportunity for early career scientists that are working in similar fields um, and doing similar things for other purposes to apply their skills and knowledge uh, to this new industry. How hard is it to find these resources, to find these individuals? Are, are the universities keeping pace with the developments and training people up into these new technologies that they need to embrace and new sciences, or are you feeling like it's still pretty hard to find the right people to put in place? It's definitely, um, you know, still a, a work in progress, I think. Um, part of the reason uh, that part of the thing that we do at GFI is really to try to mobilize funds. And that seems to be a, a bottleneck for participants in academia to, to try to get into this industry. And so um, to that end, we have established a, a research grant program where we're actually funding uh, scientists across the world that are working directly on these projects. Um, and then when you talk about kind of early career scientists, I think, um, you know, a lot of the jobs are science-based, especially in these companies that are undergoing early R&D. And so there are um, opportunities there. However, uh, you know, the field, as we mentioned earlier, is, is still fairly nascent. And so, um, you know, a lot of people come to us asking how to get into this industry um, and, and where the jobs are. And there are a few kind of, uh, you know, you kind of just have to individually track company openings at this space. But as as the industry uh, grows, which we expect will happen, there should be a lot more opportunities um, that open up in the next two to five years. Liz, I want to talk a little bit about the market as a whole. Um, according to Euromonitor, the entirety of the alternative meat market grew 6% in 2017, still Total sales only reached $669 million, contrasted to the $29 billion juggernaut that processed meat industry represents. What are the biggest hurdles you still face in introducing consumers to the product? And are challenges different for cultured or clean meats versus plant-based meat products? Yeah, so I think, you know, the growth numbers in this field are really fascinating to watch. And when we are starting to see some regional differences emerge, um, we have some data that that just came out a few months ago showing that in the United States, the growth rate for the plant based meat industry was upwards of 22 percent, 23 percent. Wow, that's pretty um, which is really striking. Yeah, that's yeah, pretty spectacular. Yeah, growth. Yeah, so there's when we think about potential bottlenecks that might present challenges as the field scales, there's sort of the supply side bottlenecks and then the demand side bottlenecks. Um, so basically, you know, consumer adoption, consumer receptivity for the latter. Uh, on that end, we've not seen um, challenges there. You know, we, what we've seen actually consistently is that demand is outstripping supply for these products uh, across the board. And, and here again, I'm talking about just the plant-based meat products because those are the only ones commercially available so far. Um, but virtually all of the the biggest names in terms of plant-based meat products um, are, you know, are, are being asked by retailers to, you know, expand into new markets. Um, and they, they simply don't have the production capacity to do so because they're trying to make sure they can maintain stock in their existing retail outlets. Um, so we've seen demand really outpace supply for those products. And what's driving that is really 
not necessarily an increase in the number of vegetarians or vegans, but an increase in folks who consider themselves flexitarians or reducitarians. So people who are true omnivores love eating meat, but they're looking for a different option for some meals. Um, and so that's obviously a much bigger market segment than the, you know, the relatively niche vegetarians of the world, um, which was a, a segment that didn't get much attention, certainly from the big food companies in a pa- in the past. Um, it seems to so me that it seems to me the yeah. p- part of the problem with the plant based uh, the the plant based proteins as they come out is that people don't know how to cook them. They don't know how to prepare them in a way that makes it as delicious as it possibly can be. I mean, for instance, I mean, mm-hmm. for for years, I stayed away from a lot of the soy-based products because it was always so dry. And then I realized if I cook it with olive oil, it tastes fantastic. So are you doing a lot of education initiatives in terms of preparation of the food to help people understand how to prepare it in a, in a way that's more satisfying to them? Yeah, that's a great point. So part of that is is in that sort of culinary edu- education side of things. And we've heard a lot from our corporate engagement team that um, works with food service and with restaurants a lot that there really is, um, you know, a level of, of education in the preparation that makes this transition a lot easier in terms of opening these up as menu options. But part of it's in the product development as well. Um, so, you know, finding ways to encapsulate fat better such that it holds up to cooking processes and gives you that really juicy, uh, flavorful mouthfeel by the time it gets to the consumer's mouth. Um, For certain products where we've seen them roll out first in food service, for example, the Impossible Burger, um, part of that was, was so that they could work with those chefs in those specific restaurant chains and make sure that they understood the preparation. Um, but now in 2019, they're, they're developing a uh, retail-ready product that consumers can directly cook up. And part of getting to that point was having basically a more robust product um, that that's more amenable to, you know, sort of, I guess you could say user error, <laughs> you know, just being able to accommodate consumers in their homes cooking up the product. It's it's also worth mentioning that, you know, there there's a lot of cultural aspects to meat and, and food preparation. And, and so, those companies that are creating products right now, like Beyond Meat and Impossible, if you if you look at and purchase their their products in the store, um, or you, you get them frozen as a as a restaurant, um, they they come as a pink patty uh, that when you cook it, uh, it turns brown, similar to a burger, but stays a little pink inside in the middle. And so replicating kind of the cooking time that it takes to to reach that. Um, compared to a traditional uh, hamburger made of beef um, is something that these companies are aiming to do to really recapitulate the kind of full cooking experience for um, the people that make the food. And jumping in on the product development side, we work with and advise a class at UC Berkeley that's technically listed in the industrial engineering department, but draws students from a lot of different engineering and science disciplines. And one of the things that those students are tasked with doing is developing a product that is either going to be itself a new plant-based or clean meat product or something that could be kind of a B2B, something that's sold as an additive um, or as a packaging innovation, for example, to companies that make these products. So a couple of teams um, from last year, last time the course was offered, developed kind of freeze-dried 
uh, encapsulated oils that could be used as an additive to plant-based meat formulations where the oil itself is encapsulated in some kind of amphiphilic um, kind of bilayer mimicking a cell's lipid bilayer so that it can then be lyophilized and then sold as kind of a powder um, that can be added to like a soy protein mixture to make sure that that lipid, that um, oily kind of mouthfeel is present in the final cooked product. So there's a lot of product development going on um, from the student side as well. Experience sounds like it's the number one way to get people adopting these products. Um, having a good experience with a product will generate more interest in it and more appetite. But um, it seems that plant-based meat products have uh, an advantage over the cultured meat products in that they have a, a head start, a number of years on the market ahead of this. And also there's a little bit of a creep factor of e eating meat that grew in a lab. So how do you overcome that with the audience and help them to understand that a cultured meat is every bit as good as, as meat that can probably better than meat that came from an animal? Yeah, I'm happy to jump in on that one. And then Elliot, you can pick up. Um, I, so I think a couple of years ago, the conversation around clean meat really was a question about this ick factor. You know, people, at least in some spheres, don't like technology in their foods. You know, they, they might be find this kind of creepy or, or whatever term you use. What we found in study after study since then um, and studies that have been done much more rigorously than than some of the early kind of you know informal polls is that people really are are you know surprisingly receptive to this approach and and you can get upwards of 40 50 percent consumer acceptance consumers saying yes I'd be willing to try this product depending on how you frame, what the product is and what its benefits are. So there have been a handful of studies that have tested um, different messaging or different narratives. So one where they're talking about sustainability benefits, one where you know they're simply saying this product is is less likely to carry uh, foodborne illness causing pathogen, um, and and so different res consumers respond differently to those. But I think you know, to, to look at a technology so new that most people haven't heard of, haven't had any exposure to, and to already be seeing such a huge segment of the population saying they are willing to try it, that's a, a pretty striking early adopter um, segment. And yeah, I would, I would also add, um, you know, for the clean meat industry, one of the things that, you know, we think will be advantageous in terms of gaining consumer adoption is the idea of transparency of how the food is created. And so when you think about a kind of future, um, you know, production pipeline that's being implemented for, for cell-based meat, we really imagine it more akin to something like a brewery where, you know, people could actually um, you know, either stream or, or actually visit the facility, facilities where the meat is made. Whereas in kind of conventional animal agriculture, um, there have been several states that have passed ag-gag laws that kind of prevent um, consumers from knowing what goes on inside of uh, large animal operations and slaughterhouses and things like that. And so gaining the public's acceptance through kind of just open transparency in terms of the process, we think will go to, uh, you know, pay, pay dividends down the road. And additionally, one thing to note about kind of both of these uh, industries is that the process itself is, is iterative. And so 
as the technology grows, um, you can release products that are kind of newer implementations of, of past products. And we've already seen that in the plant-based sp space where um, companies are already releasing products that they deem 2.0, where they've approved upon their original formulations. And so this iterative process of improving products over time should be applicable to both the plant-based meat and the cell-based meat industries. I have, another, I have another question on this uh, on this subject, Allison. I want to go to the global perspective on this. So, which markets are embracing these products? You know, and do the adoption hurdles change outside the United States as opposed to what we currently face here? Yeah, we definitely see that different markets are going to look for different substitutes. So, for example, maybe um, a substitute for mutton or for a lamb-based product would be more popular in India. Substitutes for beef-type products would be more popular in Latin America and in South America. But we see a number of different markets that are embracing meat substitute demand, um, in particular Markets like uh, Denmark, Australia, Argentina, Germany have all seen very high uh, growth rates in terms of demand for meat substitute, even if they're not the overall largest market um, for meat substitutes, which is, as we see at the U.S., followed by the United Kingdom. Um, but these kind of developing countries that are um, seeing that a large part of their um, economic growth is driven by animal agriculture, um, like in particular... Argentina um, and some other Latin American countries, Brazil, for example, that uh, devote a lot of their land to animal agriculture and also um, a lot of their exports end up being animal products. Um, they're also starting to embrace these substitutes for environmental reasons um, and also to ensure the sustainability and stability of their economies. They don't want to have um, the overall global market that's the uh, importer of their products switch over to a substitute that then they are not providing or that they can't compete with. We also think that there's a lot of economic opportunity for countries to kind of take the lead um, in this space. And so we expect or, or hope that a lot of governments will begin to pour a lot of funding into the development of these products. And so we actually have an international uh, department at GFI where we have people working in different countries to try to understand the needs of individual countries uh, and the regulatory space within those uh, countries. Uh, just one additional point I wanted to make was that when you look at um, some of the countries that are beginning to kind of take the lead when you think about um, future food security, uh, so you have countries like Israel and Japan that have already invested in clean meat companies themselves as, uh, as a way to produce meat within the country, but without using obviously the large amount of land and things like that um, that uh, can impact or that's conventionally done with traditional animal agriculture. And so we already see governments internationally starting to think about how to approach um, embracing these new technologies. What, what are the biggest hopes and fears as opposed to, I mean, what, what kind of concerns do you have for 2019 and what kind of hopes do you have for the industry liz because it seems like the sky's the limit in, the, in terms of opportunity and yet there's got to be some roadblocks that you're worried about coming forward in the next few months yeah i think you know the greatest um potential roadblocks that keep me up at night are um, we need to drive more talent into this space. You know, when Elliot was talking about the various disciplines and areas of expertise that are relevant here, 
you know, you talk to to classes full of, of graduate students in those fields, and oftentimes they're sort of single-mindedly looking for potential career opportunities in, you know, in therapeutics or in medicine, um, increasingly in, you know, some other sort of green chemistry type of applications of, of cell culture and so forth. Um, but I think food innovation is is not really on the radar yet for a lot of people within those disciplines. Um, and I think that that will be really critical is building up a much more robust academic uh, research um, sort of ecosystem around this, as well as building that talent pipeline for these companies, because we hear from these companies a lot that um, that it can, it can take quite a bit of effort for them to find the right technical folks for their team. Um, so I think really spreading the word among those scientific communities about all of the opportunities in this space will be really important. Um, another thing that we've been increasingly giving time, uh, thinking, spending time thinking about is looking at how these large supply chains will have to shift and evolve in the next, you know, couple of decades. So starting to really look long term um, and look at the, the inputs of these alternative meat production platforms um, and what supply chains exist and looking at do we expect that we might run into bottlenecks for certain ingredients or certain um, processing infrastructure or something like that so that we can start to proactively kind of map out um, how those supply chains need to evolve as, as these sectors increase in volume relative to conventional meat. Well, before, before we wrap up, I want to uh, ask you all about what kind of opportunities are available in this field for specifically chemical engineers, considering this is a show that addresses chemical engineering. Um, what resources should they be checking out? I mean, Elliot, maybe you'd be the best person to start with. Sure. Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges right now is really figuring out how to scale up the cell-based meat technology in a way that's um, affordable and, and efficient. And so uh, with that in mind, you know, chemical engineers are, are greatly sought after in, in this industry. Um, to that end, you know, GFI, we have a bunch of resources that are available for people that are thinking about um, transitioning their careers or, or even starting companies in this space. And so we maintain a community of entrepreneurs that are interested in, in kind of starting a company or exploring, um, uh, finding business partners or things like that to, to start companies in this space. Um, we kind of publish additional white, white paper materials that kind of give an overview of the industry and how it relates to uh, different uh, biomedical applications and, and how, how much overlap there is between those. Um, and additionally, I think you know, tying in um, what Liz was just talking about, um, what we're trying to do more at GFI is engage uh, kind of existing life science companies that make things like bioreactors or scaffolding materials or cell culture mediums. And so we want to get those companies on board that have the, uh, the expertise and, and get them focused and thinking about these industries. And that should open up additional career opportunities for scientists, um, such as chemical engineers uh, in this space as well. Well, I really appreciate you all. Oh, uh, got, got something more to add? I just wanted to mention that um, Allison has a really phenomenal online course, a massive open online course. Um, Allison, do you want to give the, the address where people can find that? Yeah, if you go to gfi.org slash uh, online courses, 
you can find that and it's also linked through our resources page. GFI.org/mooc will get you there directly as well. Fantastic. Well, that's that's great information, and this has been a really interesting conversation. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us on. Our guests today have been Dr. Allison Burke, Dr. Liz Specht, and Dr. Elliot Swartz. For more details about the topics we discussed, or to find out more about the Doing a World of Good program, visit doingaworldofgood.org. And that does it for this episode of Doing a World of Good. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, search for us on your favorite podcast directory or visit doingaworldofgood.org. On behalf of everyone at the American Institute of Chemical Engineers, I'm Bob Norp. Thanks for listening. Thank you.